0: Love Talk Radio.
1: What is up? Um,
2: there were about 78 straight hours of uh, CNN town hall yesterday. Uh, they had like a lot of the candidates discussing climate change. And uh, we're not going to go through all of it. We're not going to treat it like a, like a regular debate. But um, yeah, there were some good moments. There were some bad moments. America's dad, Bernard Sanders, did a fantastic job. Elizabeth Warren had some cringeworthy moments, but she also had a moment that was very good in terms of reframing the debate on climate change and what we should do to fix it. Um, We also have, uh, well, later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about Trump getting into it with the media again, and this is probably one of my favorite stories of the year, because The way Trump got into it with the media is like, without even trying, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. He's going to do something so embarrassing and so petty that it just proves he has zero shame. And it is, um, you know, I think he's a pathological liar. But also, when you get to this point of doing what he did, he knows he's full of shit. He knows he's full of shit. He just doesn't care. He just keeps plowing forward. So I can't wait to do that story with you. That's about four stories deep. Um, I will also be going after uh, Marianne Williamson, the orb lady. And uh, she said something really dumb, deleted the tweet, and then somehow, this is the first time I've ever seen this, it's a two-for-one job. She deleted the tweet, but then also somehow doubled down on the tweet. I don't know how that's possible. In fact, that's not possible. But that's what happened. So we're going to talk about that, and um, I just, I got a lot of stuff today, man. I got Walmart taking action on guns, I'll be making fun of um, Squeaky Ben Shapiro, I got Bet on My Stork, who I'll be making fun of, Uh, forget about it, there's just, you're going to be, park your ass there for the next two hours, because we're going to have some fun. Anyway, I just saw Progressive Voice was coming, I was just watching this video, Progressive Voice was coming after me. Uh, let's see. I got it on double speed here, but let's see. Let's see what he's saying. He's something about how uh, my own fans called me out for being wrong, <laughs> but it's about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders um, and how I said when Bernie's asked a direct question, he should be able to draw a distinction between him and Elizabeth Warren. Let's see what he's saying here. To
3: be honest with you, so it doesn't even, again, you even know that front, it doesn't really make any sense. They kind of, they're not really competing for the same people for votes. They have very, very different, wildly different voting bases. Uh,
2: right off the bat, that's not true. That's not true. Of course you're competing for the same votes. It's a Democratic primary. He's trying to draw demographic distinctions and say, well, Elizabeth Warren supporters are typically older, and they have a college education, and Bernie Sanders supporters are younger, and they're people of color, and many don't have a college education, so they're not competing for the same vote. Of course they are. If it's a Democratic primary, you're competing for the same vote. Yes, there are some demographic trends, and there are some age trends when you look at the different candidates, but the whole point of a primary is you're trying to win votes, so... Yet, yeah, Bernie is also trying to get college-educated voters. He is also trying to get older voters, even though the majority of his voters are young and people of color. So that's just wrong to say they're not competing for the same votes. Of course they are. And just so everybody knows, uh, my argument was when Bernie's asked a direct question to draw a distinction between him and Elizabeth Warren, he's allowed to do that. I don't think he should, in a gratuitous way, attack her at rallies, attack her randomly in the media, bring it up, uh, you know, be the first one to initiate it. Basically, the only times at at this stage, the only time I'm okay with Bernie Sanders attacking Elizabeth Warren is if she attacks him first, then you go right back at her, okay, or he's asked a direct question on it. That's when I think Bernie can attack Elizabeth Warren. Let's see what else he says here.
3: So that doesn't seem to make sense either. But if they, if they continue their team, and that's what they've been doing, they've essentially been teaming up, their idea is this, let's take down the bigger threats first, that being Biden, Kamala, and all the rest of them, whether it be Mayor Pete or it be Cory Booker or whoever it may be, right? Let's take them down. That's what they did in that debate. You saw it was them against everybody. That's what it was. And so they were KOing all the idiots on stage with these like Democratic centrists and these conservative Democrats.
2: And, yeah, that's exactly why I wouldn't want Bernie to go after Elizabeth Warren randomly in a rally or initiate a fight. I don't want him to go after Elizabeth Warren. I don't want him to go after Tulsi Gabbard. Um, I think that when you have people who are to some extent your allies in the race, yeah, you should utilize that as much as possible. However, where I I disagree is this idea of like a, a very hard no on any distinction between you and Elizabeth Warren well, then you're just not doing your job as a candidate because you're not making your own case. Now, to be fair, Elizabeth Warren is doing the exact same thing where she's refusing to attack Bernie in any way, shape, or form. Um, but there should have been a little asterisk in that backroom deal that they made where the idea is I don't go after you, you don't go after me. We'll work together when one of us gets the nomination. Um, but the only time we're allowed to draw distinctions is if it's brought, it's, we're asked specifically. We're asked specifically, what's the difference between you and Bernie? And again, like I said in the original video, it's about giving people the information. In other words, you don't give them the information and then add something on top of it to go after her. It's just give them the information. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference there. There's a distinction there. Just like he's doing with Joe Biden where he says, Joe, Joe's a friend of mine. But then he goes on to say, but Joe supported TPP, I was against TPP. Joe supported the Iraq war, I'm against the Iraq war. And he gives this basically dry, factual list of the difference. Now, again, people interpret that as just an attack on Biden, but in reality it's just a restatement of what is. So if it's an attack, it's because people know that he's got a guilty conscience because everybody knows Bernie was right on those issues and Joe was wrong on those issues. You're allowed to restate the historical record, man. Truth is always a defense. Truth is always a defense. And you can still do that without really violating that pact of like, hey, don't attack me. I didn't attack you. I was asked what's the difference between me and you as a candidate, and I stated what the difference was. I didn't say, hey, here's what she did, and oh, yeah, by the way, I am outraged about this, and I think that she needs to do this, this, and this. He didn't do that, and he wouldn't do that. But you're allowed to state the difference.
3: And they're teaming up together because that was the smart, and strategic thing to do. And I'm glad that Kyle was not advising Bernie in this situation because his idea is just wrong. Not only would it like it just seems stupid, but the ultimate question you have to ask yourself is this: What is the utility of Bernie Sanders doing that? You can ask yourself: What is the utility of Bernie Sanders responding there with everything that Kyle just said, all of the problems with Elizabeth Warren that exist? What would be the utility of doing that? And B: Would any, you know, if we bore out the situation, would these supposed benefits in any way outweigh the negatives? The answer to that question is absolutely no. If he were to lay out even any of those things, like for example, if he would be like, "Well, Warren voted for Trump's military budget," you think Warren's not going to be like, "Yo, that's like a critique on me. I'm going to have to respond to that." I don't understand what you mean. Like,
1: yeah, sure, I agree that. Uh,
2: Yeah, she would have to respond, and that would put her in a position of defending Trump's military budget, which she can't do because she can't win that exchange. And again, what's the benefit of calling her out? To just draw a distinction between you and her, because it's a fucking primary we're in. Let me explain something. She is up against him in an election right now. They are both going to be on the ballot, and people have to pick which one they want. To act like there is zero difference is just disingenuous. (laughs) So is there a benefit to saying, yeah, there's a difference between her and I? You could say, ideologically, we're very close, because we agree on 85% of the issues. You could say that, but to act like that 15% doesn't exist because of some you know, vague idea of strategy. Well, a strategy only makes sense in so far as it gets you elected. You don't strategize for the sake of of strategizing. You strategize in order to try to win. And part of winning is drawing a distinction between you and the other candidates. Yes, even ones that you agree with on many things. So uh, this just strikes me as politically naive to be honest with you. She would
3: have guilty conscience about that vote, no doubt, but it doesn't mean she's not gonna respond. It's still gonna sow discord, which is the main point. It's still going to cause a sort of disagreement and str- and, and, and rife within the two, so it doesn't seem to make any sense. And I, I'm actually glad that they have decided to team up to take down the corporate first. And then once the time comes where if it's down to Bernie Warren, then that's the time for Bernie to be like you know, to be like, Hey, Warren's my friend, but you know, she didn't have political courage, she you know, her student debt plan is in this mind, all of this stuff that Kyle kind of laid out there. I think the strongest point he could probably hit is the big dollar fundraisers in general. But like there is zero utility in doing that right now. This is a great idea where it's like, yo, let's take down the corporate first.
2: If there's zero utility in doing it, then why did you just admit that he should do it at a certain point? So you agree with the point I'm making. You just say I don't agree with the timing of it. Talk about a mountain out of a molehill. <laughs> That's a very different argument. The original argument was, oh, it's stupid that, and and you don't think that they he should go after her. Now the argument shifted to, oh, it's you could do it, but just do it at a different time when I want it. Well, I can't imagine a better time to do it than when you're fucking asked about her record. What's stupid is bending over backwards to dodge a question because that's what he did in order to not be truthful. Again, that's what he did. So, if you disagree on the timing, should have argued that from the beginning, but at the beginning you said it was a stupid thing to do, now you're saying just do it later, so... You want him to do the stupid thing later, or perhaps you don't think it's stupid.
3: Exactly. And then if that time comes, you know, if there's a time where it's them to, then at that point, okay, then you, you, know, you have to hash it out and sort of figure it out. At this point, there's really no need for that. So that's kind of the thing that I don't understand. This is just bad. We're in September right now, folks. We're in September. They're not, they're not remember, they're not fighting for the same people voting for them. They have very, very different voting blocks. Okay.
2: But they are fighting for the same people. Of course they're fighting for the same people. You're not, let me explain something to you. The strategy in an election is not just you micro-target demographics. And you only go after those demographics. In fact, that's a fucking terrible idea to try to win an election. The whole idea is when you're trying to get votes, you get them from everybody, and you specifically target the people who are not already on your side. You already have the people who are on your side by definition. So you've got to try to expand and get more votes. And the strategy is let's get more people who are in the Democratic base who stayed home. Let's get independents. Let's get, let's get the, the salvageable right-leaning voters this idea that Bernie's supposed to write off, like, older voters or wealthier voters or um, or ones who have a college degree, you made that up, and that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Nobody should pick you to run their campaign, not by any stretch of the imagination. So they are competing for the same voters, even though you've what he's done is he's looked at the demographic trends of the people who already support both these candidates, generally speaking, and now he's saying, like, that's the end of the analysis. Like, hey, this is who supports Warren, this is who supports Bernie, therefore, you should, like, they shouldn't make an attempt to try to get those particular demographics that appeal to the other person, which is, again, a really, really terrible idea. In fact, what Warren is and and should be trying to do is I need younger voters and I need uh, people of color voters. So she's reaching out to them. Many of the recent plans she's come out with Appeal to those demographics. Bernie, yes, he should also be trying to appeal to more college-educated voters now, older voters now. You know, there's a particular framing of a message which does reach those people, which is a framing that you've seen from Bernie from time to time. And it's definitely intentional. The framing is, no, 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 I'm the real centrist. I'm the real centrist, because what I'm talking about is not radical. That's how Bernie loves to say it. So in other words, hey, I know what you hear about me in the media. That's nonsense. I'm the real mainstream candidate. I'm the real moderate candidate. I'm not radical at all. I'm talking about very basic things that the rest of the industrialized world has. That message is crafted particularly to try to get the people who are not already in favor of them. So, yes, they're fighting for the same voters. Of course they are. Everybody's fighting for the same voters in a Democratic primary. By definition, yes, they have different demographic trends, generally speaking, in terms of who's attracted to them up front. But, yeah, you're trying to win the Democratic primary. You're trying to get as many voters as possible who are going to participate in the Democratic primary. That's a freaking tautology, and I don't know why you're arguing against it.
3: In a very, very different. So it makes no
2: sense. It is a horrifyingly bad
3: idea. That would be such an imagine. And then the media is going to take that and spin it, and they're going to talk nonstop about how he's trying to, you know, uh, so rife in the Democratic Party and just trying to uh, just make everything super chaos.
2: But they're, the media is going to go after him anyway. So the way you handle that is you don't try to, to you know, weave a path solely to not get attacked by the media you know he has a voice and he can respond and no matter what he and he knows progressive voice knows this better than anybody whatever whatever bernie does they're going to attack him so it's just a matter of doing the right thing in terms of what appeals to voters so to act like well yeah well the media is going to go after him if he does that the media is going to go after him when he does the opposite i don't know if you saw that vice news piece but it was not favorable to bernie <laughs> So, it's a weird thing to do to say, well, this might happen, therefore, he shouldn't go use that strategy.
3: ...and all that other kind of stuff, and he's going after them, blah, blah, blah. You already know all the crap that he's going to do. For Pete's sake, I think I saw CNN do a segment on him with uh, Speed Like, come on, bro, this is just a terrible idea. Um, and I don't understand how anybody could think this was good, but... Just take a justable peek down here in the comments. Uh, there's some, here, some says Bernie says, it's so obviously they point out those differences. He just doesn't want to allow the media him into attacking Warren because you know they will it the in a way of now Bernie going after Warren and making sure that he needs to boost the razor, looking at it from a substantive uh, policy difference. Now one says, he benefits from having Warren decide fighting Biden. He can worry about progressive finer points later. If he takes out Warren early, the woman champion becomes Kamala Harris, not ideal, very very true. So maybe he's just refusing for not trying to focus on taking out Biden first. he does more aggressive after finally after Biden finally goes away. Um just just the answer by Bernie. Interviews likely asked bosses, from Bernie going after Warren. So get headlines about it. Uh, some the to trick him into um, <clears throat> saying something that the media cool. anyway, watch that clip, you can the interviewer was like really set on getting Bernie to say something that they could sensationalize and use against some hundred percent. It was an interview again, I believe Bernie's waiting out to make this distinction. I understand this is not by standards but it says there'd be a, a place, you know, they want to say like literally every comment here is just disagreeing with that well, Because he's wrong, quite like, frankly, he's just wrong. Like it's this is a terrible this is a terrible suggestion for Bernie. I, mean, I don't know I don't know how else to put this before, folks. this is just a terrible suggestion. Um, because it Like dude, that's just like we'd be that's so stupid because we'd be eating ourselves at that point at the wrong time. It's like if you if you have progressives going at each other from the beginning and you go
2: Oh, hold on, we'd be eating ourselves at this point in time and that's not okay. Pretty sure Progressive Voice has done videos attacking Tulsi Gabbard. She's nominally our ally. Truth is always a defense. Truth is always a defense. You're allowed to state that which is true at any point in time. So it's just a weird thing to say, oh, my God, we'd be eating our own. Well, you participated in eating our own when you go after Tulsi Gabbard. Now, what would his response to that be? Yeah, but the things I was saying were true. So there you go. That's the point I'm making. Defense. Uh, Truth is a defense. What people need to digest here is the idea isn't to gratuitously attack Elizabeth Warren. The idea is to draw dry, factual, basic distinctions between you and Elizabeth Warren when you're asked about it. Because to not do so is dishonest. So if you're, willi- if you're not willing to comprehend that there's a massive difference between a strategy of attacking Elizabeth Warren and answering a question honestly with dry factual information and adding nothing on top of it that's an extra snipe at her, then I don't know what to tell you, because then you obviously don't do nuance. So um, I'm not in favor of them ripping up that deal that they made behind closed doors. But what I am in favor of is tiny asterisks. And the asterisks include things such as, if you attack me, I'm going to respond. That's always fair game. In both directions. In both directions. Um, And if you're asked a direct question, you're allowed to point out basic differences. Listen, if she perceives that as an attack, restating her policy record, perhaps she shouldn't have done those votes. So, you, so she wants to be able to vote for that Trump military budget and not have anybody respond to it? Come on, son. Come on, son. That's in the same way that, like, what, Tulsi gave that waffly answer on torture in the wake of the, the Senate torture report being released, and then what, nobody's allowed to talk about it, and somehow you're smearing her if you bring up her literal direct words? No. No, no, no. That's not how politics works. And that's certainly not how the truth works. So anyway, we'll leave it there, but um, not good not good from the progressive voice, and uh, people need to understand that somebody can be your ally, and you can still be reasonable in pointing out distinctions, particularly in a goddamn primary election when she is literally your opponent. That was an impromptu segment, and it went 20 minutes, by the way. I don't think that will be going on YouTube, but nonetheless, there you have it. All right, handsy Uncle Joseph. Here we go. We're starting out with him. So Joe Biden was called out for his very sketchy fundraising live on CNN last night during a climate change town hall. This is actually... This feels good watching this because it's almost like he's kept the mask on for so long and in today's day and age, there's no hiding it anymore. And people are ripping that mask off and it's exposing some ugly stuff. Watch this and then we'll discuss.
4: Senator Biden, I'm 27 years old. Half of all greenhouse gas emissions ever generated by the entire history of human civilization have been released in my lifetime. This despite the now well-documented fact that 40 years ago, scientists at Exxon and Shell knew and reported to their bosses that burning fossil fuels was warming the planet and would destabilize the climate. Fossil fuel corporations, their executives, their trade and industry organizations, and their think tank front groups have waged a decades-long campaign of lying to the public about the science, and it has brought us to a crisis that threatens the entire human race. Now, I know that you signed the no-fossil-fuel money pledge, but I have to ask, how can we trust you to hold these corporations and executives accountable for their crimes against humanity when we know that tomorrow you are holding a high-dollar fundraiser hosted by Andrew Goldman,
1: a fossil fuel executive? He's not a fossil fuel executive. Okay. not a fossil fuel executive. If you're going to a fundraiser that's given in
5: part by this guy who has a company that is – uh, pulling up natural gas. Are you the right guy to go after this?
1: Well, I didn't realize he does that. I was told if you look at the SEC filings, he's not listed as one of those executives. That's who we look at, the SEC filings. Who are those executives? I've kept that pledge,
5: period. So is that – are you going to look at that fundraiser tomorrow night? I'm going to look
1: right? at what you just told me and find out if that's accurate? Yes.
5: Okay. Uh, I think it's pretty accurate. Uh-
2: It is accurate, and actually, filings in Canada, as recent as 2018, do put him as not only the co-founder, but an executive at a fossil fuel company. Come on, Joe. You, you can't – that's not an acceptable response because, okay, you didn't think he was literally a fossil fuel executive. What did you think he was? What did you think he was? Like, oh – you know, no big deal or anything. I just thought he was like a standard hedge fund goon who's massively wealthy, who's going to try to bias me in favor of his class interests. That's just as bad, bro. That's just as bad. It's a new era in, in politics. It really is. This stuff doesn't fly anymore. Back in the day, you could come out there and say some pretty flowery words, and everybody would go, oh, I guess that's what he stands for. Yay! And then they go away, and then you know, people would vote for them, and then that'd be the end of the conversation because they would continue the status quo. Now, you've got people watching you like a hawk, son. Watching you like a hawk. And they know what you're doing. They know you're still doing these big money fundraisers. They know that you're fundamentally a candidate who will continue business as usual. Like, we see through you. Even, look at his healthcare care plan, for example. He basically wants a public option, but he, he frames it as like an expansion of Obamacare. And he actively goes after Medicare for all and acts like it's not a good idea. People are on to the fact that every plan but Medicare for all to one extent or another exists solely to protect the interests of the for-profit health insurance companies and Big Pharma, which are currently ripping people off with no end in sight. So since that's the case, the status quo manager approach to politics is just totally unappealing you want to know why because people are getting absolutely obliterated with the way things work right now whether it's you know oh my god my influence costs three sixty dollars when it costs six dollars to make or something like that like people look at that and when you come in and say now now let's have both sides sit at the table and come to some sort of a solution let's split the difference what if what if we had it cost say a hundred and Hundred and seventy five dollars. What if the incident costs one seventy five instead of three sixty? No, people still got more than that people are not gonna than that. I mean, come on. But this is fundamentally Joe Biden's candidacy. And um, you know, he's also against the Green New Deal as he he's in doing this climate change town hall, and it's like climate change is a problem that's so massive and overwhelming in scale that the only way to address it is to do it in a systemic fashion. You can't just do it like like some of the candidates on stage, including Yang, and this is terrible, but they like to frame it as a personal issue, like an individual issue. Like, well, why don't people, if people just stop eating meat? Ah! You cannot address this problem on an individual level. In all seriousness, it's as stupid as acting like in World War II. It's like, I don't understand. Why don't you just pick up your rifle and go on your own to fight Hitler? No! We needed a mass mobilization we needed an effort where we're all together we needed a, a top-down movement uh, in a collective fashion because some problems by their very nature need to be addressed in that way and you can't do it in an, in an individual level by the way yang also repeated the right-wing lie that the green new deal bans airplanes ah god damn it man listen 78 70- or excuse me, 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. That means if everybody decided overnight, I'm going to be as socially conscious as possible, and I'm going to try to have no emissions. Yay! If that was the case, you'd only get rid of about 30% of the emissions. Which is barely a drop in the bucket. Because, again, 100 companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. You need a massive effort. You need, like, a New Deal-level effort, if not more. But it's okay because this can be viewed as an opportunity because we can have millions and millions of jobs created, and we can get inevitable patents in this very Wild Wild West frontier industry where, you know, you can have green technology, you can have renewable technology, you can have innovation in this sphere. We don't have to look at it as like a negative thing. You look at it as, oh, we have this opportunity to retool our economy and move in the right direction. And also, in all seriousness, and this is speaking the language of U.S. empire, you want to remain the empire? (laughs) Do you want to do that? Now, I'm not in favor of empire, but this argument certainly applies to the elites. Well, what do you think is the next giant economic boom? Where's Where's it going to come from? You think it's going to be fucking fossil fuel? No, we got to move off of that. The next economic boom is going to come with green and renewable technology. Now, do you want to lead the way on that, or do you want to be a fucking idiot way behind the pack as China and Russia or whoever the hell else starts leading on it, and then they end up being the beneficiaries of the movement in this direction? God, they're so stupid. I mean, the Republican Party and the corporate Democrats are basically like, They live in the old days, and as the telephone just came out, they're, like, trying desperately to hang on to the Morse code industry and acting like, no, we got it. I mean, Morse code. Morse code's wonderful. Isn't Morse code? I love Morse code. Don't you love Morse code? Who doesn't love Morse code? How can we stand up against Morse code? I mean, that's how we do it now, so that's got to be how we do it continuously, right? God, you're all so stupid. Ah! Joe Biden is embarrassing. I'm very happy he was called out for doing a fundraiser with the fossil fuel executive. Uh, don't get it twisted. The guy is not only a fossil fuel executive as recently as 2018. The guy was a co-founder of a fossil fuel company. I mean, come on, man. Are we going to act like, no, 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 he's got no interest in that industry anymore. Oh, and that's, that's the line his team is running with, by the way. What they said was factually wrong. He's not a fossil fuel executive. Really, as recently as 2018, he was registered as one in, in Canada, but even putting that aside, if you want to put that aside, fine. He co-founded the freaking company. Joe Biden is incredibly sketchy. He's an old-school wheeler and dealer politician, and his time has passed. And there's this weird thing that happened last night, because, you know, we joke around sometimes. We call him Handsy Uncle Joseph, hence the giant hands. Um, but we've also kind of casually called him Melting Brain Biden, because he seemingly is, you know, every time he talks, he can't get a full sentence out, and he's struggling. I haven't done that often, because it is kind of mean, and, I, and you know, handsy Uncle Joseph just is funny, in my opinion, but melting brain Biden is a little bit mean, uh, so I haven't done it often, but a really weird thing happened last night. While he was live on national TV, he had a burst capillary in his eye, and so it looked like his eye was bleeding. Now, that's actually, medically, that that's, it's a non-issue, That that's not like there's no problem with that. People get burst capillaries all the time, um, and there's, it's not. oftentimes it's not any kind of symptom of a deeper problem. It just is something that happens in some people, and it's really not a medical problem. It looks scarier than it is, basically, but, man, the optics of that, like this dude who's been struggling nonstop on the campaign trail, and then he's given this uh, live on national TV, all of a sudden one of his eyes is just bright red because he burst a capillary in his eye. It's, it's almost, like, scripted. It almost seems like it's scripted, doesn't it? Like, it's just a cherry on top in terms of everybody noticing that you're struggling and your time has passed. And boy, oh boy, has your time passed. Okay, next.
1: All right, one more on Hansy
2: Uncle Joseph. Here we go. So this next story is an ominous sign for the likes of Joe Biden and his campaign. Campaign says Biden doesn't have to win Iowa to capture 2020 nomination. Why does this matter? Iowa is the first contest. Um... It is important in the sense that it kind of sets a tone moving forward, and we get an idea of uh, who are the real candidates, who really have no shot. For Biden to come out and say, for his campaign to come out and say, well, you know, hey, if we don't win there, it is what it is, and we'll figure it out moving forward. He says, oh, we're going to focus on Super Tuesday. This is them, in no uncertain terms, lowering expectations. In other words, they expect he's going to lose Iowa, he's going to lose New Hampshire. They probably expect it's not even going to be close. And so this is them saying in advance, just so you know, when he loses Iowa and New Hampshire, this isn't going to be – that doesn't mean the campaign is done. It just It means everything – it's all good. Everything's fine. No problem here, bro. <laughs> And, and they give their arguments where they're like, well, you know, I mean, in New Hampshire, you, yeah, the, the record of people who are from New England who uh, do well in those early primaries and caucuses, and yeah, I mean, they do well there. So, you know, we're kind, it's almost like they're conceding up front in Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't know how good their ground game is there, but my guess is it's abysmal. Um, but lowering expectations this far out, That's them pressing the panic button, dog. And, and now they're saying, oh, we expect, you know, a long, drawn-out fight. Interesting, really. You expect a long, drawn-out fight. When Biden initially announced, he was up by, like, 25 points in some polls. But now you expect a long, drawn-out fight. So you're acknowledging that that massive lead that you originally had is basically not there? So you're admitting that? Hmm. Interesting. He is in trouble. He's in trouble. And guys, just so you know, this is a little bit different from Hillary Clinton because it seems like the people on Biden's team actually know his flaws massively, whereas the Hillary Clinton people were totally blind to it in, in like a really over-the-top, arrogant way. But that's why they went with like a limited exposure strategy for Biden, and they're still doing it where it's like, Yeah, he's going to do events and stuff, but, you know, like, not nearly as many as the other people, and he's going to hide from the cameras because we know that the more you see him, the more you don't like him. So even with them doing everything they can, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Biden back together again. Like, even with all their little tricks, still they are coming to the realization that best case best case scenario this is a really tight race wow cuz as you're saying that and and many of the polls you're the front runner i'm thinking with bernie sanders hey could it be a runaway for him he's in trouble he's one of those people how many times have i said this on this show he's one of those people where the idea of him is better than the reality of him hillary clinton when she was secretary of state and then when she stepped down People actually had a high approval rating for her. Weird, right? You like you probably don't remember that now. She started tanking when she went out there and started talking. The more she campaigned, the more her numbers went down. Joe Biden is in a very very similar circumstance. So this is uh, quite a thing to see. It's almost like what we predicted earlier on is coming to fruition. It took a little longer than I expected, but it's still happening. You know, that, that lead is lost. You know, a, a more accurate reflection of where he's at right now, in my opinion, is what the newer polls are showing. And there's now a trend. He was up, oh, shit, he was up with 25 points. Now he's only up seven points. Up oh, now he's only up five points. Oh, now we have a new poll that shows them dead tied, basically. Yeah, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren at 20% nationally and Biden at 19%. That's a more accurate reflection of where everything's at. And, again, the more the race continues, the more he's going to go down. And his own campaign is recognizing this. And they're all but conceding Iowa and New Hampshire. Well, that's one of those things where it's like, where do you think all the momentum is going to be? If you're banking on um, on Super Tuesday saving you, well, I mean, the media coverage after, let's say Biden comes in like fourth in Iowa and New Hampshire, the media coverage is going to be brutal from from then until Super Tuesday. So, you're like people they're going to dig your political grave, dog, even though they've been downplaying, oh, this is, you know, oh, he's fine, this and that. I'm telling you, man, they will turn on him after he loses Iowa and New Hampshire if he loses them substantially. They will turn on him, and the narrative becomes Biden's done. And then you expect Super Tuesday to bump you back up? Please, son. They know they're in trouble, and that's reason to celebrate. All right, next. All right, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Nationalizing Utilities. Well actually that's not the main focus of this story, but I will mention that. Okay, here we go. So Elizabeth Warren reframed the climate change debate in a way that all the candidates should take notes on because this is this is correct the way she did this. Take a look.
0: There are a lot of ways that we try to change our energy consumption and our pollution. And God bless all of those ways. Some of it is with light bulbs. Some of it is on straws. Some of it, dang, is on cheeseburgers, right? There are a lot of different pieces to this. And I get that people are trying to find the part that they can work on and what can they do. And I'm in favor of that. And I'm going to help and I'm going to support. But understand, this is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. (laughs) That's what they want us to talk about. This is your problem They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70 percent of the pollution of the carbon that we're throwing into the air comes from three industries, and we can set our targets and say by 2028, 2030, and 2035, no more. Think about that.
2: That's right. Don't have the debate and the discussion on their terms, because their terms are fraudulent. What is with this obsession all of a sudden with plastic straws? That has to make up a tiny, tiny percentage of the plastic waste. But somehow now, this became the rallying cry. And by the way, Kamala Harris walked right into the trap. (laughs) Right into the trap. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we got to do something about that. we got to look into the uh, plastic straws thing. Just like she also pointed out the cheeseburgers thing. The conversation should not be about, oh my God, let's ban the plastic straws. Oh my God, i got to stop eating the cheeseburgers. Are you kidding me? You could not make up a scenario where you hand the debate over to the right wing any more than that. So the real way you approach this is you reframe the debate on the proper terms. The debate is not about individual personal responsibility and stop doing these things that you like and stop using these things that you like. No, the conversation has to be about systemic reform because there are 100 companies or three industries, as she puts it, responsible for 71% of global emissions. So in other words, the only way you address climate change, the only way you address it is to do systemic top-down reform where we set clear rules and, and goals and we achieve them and we meet them and we enforce it. So that's how you do it. The idea that you like personally shame people because they used a uh, straw or they ate a cheeseburger. Nonsense! Nonsense! You could, again, you couldn't craft a better message to shoot the environmental movement in the head any more than that. Like that is just, hey, right wing, here. We're going to let you recruit more people and we're going to be, be like these, this parody of the environmentalists, of like the silly environmentalists. We're going to become that living parody by acting like, oh, yeah, that's what the debate should be on. The debate should be on, you know, straws and cheeseburgers and banning air travel, which is utter nonsense. Don't let them frame this part, because in all seriousness, their framing is just a lie. It's just a lie. To act like this should be the heart of the movement. No, no. We're talking about serious proposals to wean our way and eventually get totally off of fossil fuels, and where we have a replacement and we have an economy that creates millions of jobs around this green and renewable technology. That's not a bad idea. That's not a dumb idea. If anything, it's exciting because we can have a lot more job creation as we fix our environment and try to combat climate change. So she's right about this. Now, the final point I want to make in the context of this conversation is this, though. It's amazing that you have somebody whose political instincts are so good yet also so bad at the same time, because she was asked a very straightforward question about hey, maybe profiteering off, you know, um, utilities is a terrible idea in the first place. Like, would you be in favor of maybe nationalizing utilities? And she was basically like, no. And the idea that that's like a radical position is insane. I mean, having public utilities is so commonplace in the developed world. And it's one of those things that, of course, kind of should be off the table – like healthcare is off the table in developed countries like education is off the table in developed countries this idea that somebody should swoop in and you know make a profit off of the energy sector off of electricity like why why would we be okay with certain things like that being for profit it just doesn't make any sense those should be off the table again look at the rest of the developed world super common I mean, nationalizing the energy industry is almost like a no-brainer because having it in the private sector has been an unmitigated disaster in a variety of ways. So now does this mean, and now this is me talking from my perspective, I'm not trying to reflect what her ideology is or what her uh, perspective is. Like, does this mean, oh, let's nationalize every industry? No, I don't agree with that. I don't think there's any reason to nationalize certain industries. And in fact, I think, When it comes to most consumer goods, if you do nationalize it, the evidence shows that it's worse. That industry becomes worse. So am I saying let's take this mindset and apply it everywhere? No. I'm not talking about consumer goods. I'm not talking about mattresses. I'm not talking about video games. I'm not talking about entertainment industry, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. But am I talking about energy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I am talking about that. You you know, put that right in the same category as healthcare. So it's just really strange that in some ways she she nails the framing. And she's like, oh, yeah, let's stop pretending this is about plastic straws. But on the other hand, she's asked a very straightforward question about, like, hey, can basic things be public in a civilized society? And she's like, no. There is only one Bernard Sanders. There's only one. Okay. Alright, time for my favorite story of the day Honestly, by far By far, by far, by far You're going to love this so much I fucking love this, Jesus Christ Alright, so this is without question my favorite story of the day Honestly, probably my favorite story of the year And maybe even longer than that, I'll just say it, maybe even longer than that. This is just glorious. So Trump got into it with the media yet again, because when he originally spoke about Hurricane Dorian, which, by the way, absolutely leveled the Bahamas in devastating fashion, it's a Category 5, it parked over the Bahamas and just kept pounding the Bahamas, and my heart goes out to everybody there, because really, it's like 50% of the Bahamas is destroyed right now. Insanity. So crazy. Now... The original forecast was that it, you know, it goes through through the Bahamas and then hits Florida right dead center. Ended up a little bit different than that. Kind of took a little bit of a northward turn before it hit the bah- before it hit Florida, and uh, now it's hitting South Carolina as I speak to you right now. Depending on when you're watching this video, um, but Trump originally said about Hurricane Doria that uh, okay, I we need everybody needs to be careful. Everybody needs to be ready because this is a big one. This is a Category 5. I'm not sure I've ever even heard of a Category 5 before. Now let's pause on that point. Trump has said there's been like five Category 5s since he became president, and when every Category 5 happened, he said the same thing. (laughs) I'm not sure I've ever even heard of a Category 5. I've never even heard of that. No, people don't even know about that. Dude, you said the same thing the past five times there was a Category 5. What are you talking about? Four or five? Don't quote me on that. See the four or five, something like that. Um, so he keeps repeating that line. It's just such a Trumpism. It's like, you just can't, obviously you just can't take him literally. He'll just say shit. <laughs> like, that's how he works. I'm just going to say stuff, and then you're not allowed to, like, actually hold it up against the truth because it's just never going to match. <laughs> so um, in the context of talking about Hurricane Dory and hitting the U.S., he says Florida needs to look out, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama needs to look out. And what happened was the media, in response to that, pointed out, because they should, hey, man, it's not, Dorian is not going to hit Alabama. It's not not hitting Alabama. Just let's be clear here. You know, Florida is threatened. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, sure. Definitely in the potential uh, path is what the forecasts are showing. But just, you know, hey, just quick fact check, not Alabama. Now, a normal human being, having that, you know, laid out for him. What would a normal human being do? Say, oh, okay, my bad. I misspoke. Not Alabama. That's a normal person. Not Trump. <laughs> Trump goes on a jihad acting like, no, it's supposed to hit Alabama. I told you it's supposed to hit Alabama. That's what the original forecast was showing. It's going to hit Alabama. And so, I'm, it's not the fake news. Fake news is doing fake news yet again. Fake news. Wrong. Wrong. He won't let it go. His Twitter feed is nonstop trying to, like, double down on that claim. No, 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 it's going to hit Alabama. It's going to hit Alabama. He keeps going. And everybody's like, bro, it's not that serious, dog. I mean, I guess a handful of of people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said it was going to hit Alabama, and it's not going to hit Alabama because this is important. This is like a state of emergency thing. People are going to act in reaction to what he said. I mean, not, I mean, no, not really. If he just misspoke and he did, uh, you know, or he thought it was going to hit Alabama, but it's not. Either way, he was wrong, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Okay, you got it wrong. It happens from time to time. You got to state wrong in terms of what you thought was going to hit. I don't think it's a big deal at all, but he made it a big deal because he couldn't just say, okay, you know, my bad, not Alabama. Couldn't do it, just didn't have it in him because he's King Petty. He's so goddamn petty, and he's so shameless. So, this is a long-winded way of saying, Donald Trump, in the Oval Office, talking about Hurricane Dorian, giving everybody an update, he whips out a map to show them, oh, this is the path of the hurricane right here. And I'm going to show you that video, and then I'll tell you what's really interesting about that map he's holding up. We
1: thought we'd give you an update on the hurricane. We got lucky in Florida. Very, very lucky indeed. Uh, We had actually our original chart was that it was going to be hitting Florida directly. Maybe I could just see that, Kevin. Uh, It was going to be hitting directly and that would have affected a lot of other states. Uh, But that was the original uh, chart. And you see it was going to hit uh, not only Florida, but Georgia. It could have uh, was going toward the Gulf. That was what we what was originally projected and it took the right turn and ultimately hopefully we're going to be lucky it depends on what happens in South Carolina and North Carolina
2: I don't know how well you could see it there and I don't know how well you could see it here on screen but you see the the white line showing the path of the hurricane and then you see that there's like a little black line above it Donald Trump whipped out a sharpie and expanded the path line of the hurricane to include Alabama because he was so butthurt by the media correcting him. And he couldn't just be like, you know what, you're right, you got it. No big deal. He couldn't do that. So he took the map and he expanded the line. And it's obvious he expanded the line. That's not how these forecast maps look. There is no black line on the map. It's obvious you added it with a sharpie. Bro,
0: what the fuck? What the fuck? Who does that?
2: Who does that? I know people with giant egos who don't like to admit fault, who in a circumstance like this, of course they'd be willing to be like, oh, you know what? My bad. I said Alabama. I didn't mean it. Sorry. He couldn't do it! He didn't have it in him!
0: He didn't have it in him! And so, all, look at all the
2: struggle and the work he went through to continue to double down on this when he's obviously wrong. Dude, if you look at his Twitter feed from the past few days, it's like nonstop. He's tweeting all these different maps trying to prove that it was going to hit Alabama. It was going to hit Alabama. It was gonna... There's like one that's like, the water irrigation map in Florida, and he got all these weird lines, and a couple of them, one of them or two of them, goes through Alabama, and he's like, see, hurricane, see? What a child. He's such a child. This is the equivalent of, like, you know, the lying kid of, like, I didn't, eat, I didn't eat the chocolate cookies. I didn't eat them. I didn't eat them. You see, like, the chocolate all over his mouth, and there's cookies missing. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't eat them. I didn't eat them. That's not. It's just not. I that didn't happen. I didn't. I didn't do that. I don't even know why you're still bringing this up. I didn't. There's no way. If I ate them, why there's still cookies in there? You see, there's cookies in there. There's cookies in there. You see them? That I, I didn't eat them. There's cookies right there.
0: Oh my god. Uh...
2: <laughs> okay, I laughed so hard when I first saw this. My initial reaction was like.
5: No, come on,
2: dog. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Read more into it. Yeah, he did it. He absolutely did it. And then you see on Twitter, there's the before and after map. Like, this is what a hurricane forecast map looks like. This is what the one Trump did. He drew with a Sharpie an extension into Alabama to try to pretend like, that I was going to hit, It's was totally going to hit Alabama. See, my map proves it, that I totally didn't draw on with a Sharpie. Unbelievable. Tremendous. Oh, my God. He's such a baby. I laughed so hard. I laughed so goddamn hard. Who does that? Who does Why? Dude, let it go,
0: bro. Let it go.
2: He doesn't have it in him. It's just not there, man. It's just not there. Listen, uh, you guys know me. If you've watched this show for more than, like, a month and a half, you know me, and I don't, like, I don't care about non-policy arguments, but goddamn, is this a strong character argument. <laughs> like, this dude is legitimately unfit to be president. This is the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you drew with a sharpie on a hurricane forecast map to try to act like you weren't wrong when you were. Good googly-moogly, son. Good googly-moogly. So unfit. He is so in over his head. This is like... Trump's whole presidency is like a long-ass episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like... He's just so in over his head, and he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, and he just can't act normal, and he's just... God. Oh, this is glorious. I feel... I have to say, just so everybody knows, I feel bad. I feel bad because... He is genuinely funny. Without even trying, he's one of the funniest people on the planet. It is adorable. He is so funny. (laughs) But I hate that because he's also like a monster and his policies are disastrous and they're destroying the country and hurting people and destroying the world because, of course, whether it's climate-related or whether it's foreign policy-related, what he's doing to Venezuela, what he's doing to Iran, so on and so forth. But, like, I feel terrible because I laugh at him. It's hilarious to watch him on a day-to-day basis. But it's, it's so embarrassing also, and he's really dangerous, so perhaps I shouldn't be laughing, but oh my God. Now, final point I'll make is this. This one I think is just almost ridiculous in the other direction now. People are like, because apparently it violates federal law to draw on one of these forecast maps and doctorate or whatever. Not that serious. I mean, the reason why it's whatever is because everybody knows he's Trump and he's full shit and he's lying, and the media is like, Look what you did! Why'd you do that? So it's really not like people are like you violated Penal Code Section U seventeen eight twelve, and this is why uh, this is a violation of federal law. Let's add this to the impeachment proceedings. Pipe down, son. Uh, This this reminds me of like the Trump is the stereotype of the dumb conservative, and then the people who are responding with the. Well, this violates federal law, sir! That's like the stereotype of the stick up your ass liberal. <laughs> just take it for what it is, which is fucking hilarious and really, really dumb and shows that he's got the IQ of a gnat. Take it for what it is, but reel it in a little bit. It's, because I, when I tweeted about this, people were like, Is it real? I was like, This is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. People were like, Oh, is it really that funny? He violated Section 12, 1972, the federal code, blah, 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 blah reel it in dog reel it in but um yeah Well definitely my favorite story of the day could be my favorite story of the year i mean come on we're never gonna see this again bro we're never gonna see a president so dumb and so petty and so shameless ever again it's almost like his psyche <laughs> deserves to be in a museum if <laughs> it's possible to like to like Um, you know, save a a psychological state of mind and portray it. God, it belongs in a museum. How the hell did this guy become the person he became? I mean, he's gotta have some deep trauma in his past or something because this dude is not right in the head.
1: Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, um,
2: Marianne Williamson tweeted and deleted a story, um, or a tweet. Tweeted and deleted a tweet. Yeah, of course she did, Kyle. She tweeted and deleted something that was embarrassing, but then she, like, doubled down on the thing she deleted. Really weird. Anyway, stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much more. Biden, well, no, we already covered that one, my bad, my bad, Marianne Williamson, I still can't get over that Trump hurricane story, oh, my God, I mean, that is genuinely, like, legendary levels of pettiness, if you, if there's 99, like, 99 out of 100 people would just be like, oh, my bad, no, it's not Alabama, my my fault, my fault, Trump just couldn't do it. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. It's really something else, man. That dude is from another planet. All right. So Marianne Williamson tweeted and then deleted... The following: The Bahamas, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas may all be in our prayers now. Millions of us seeing Dorian turn away from land is not a wacky idea; it is a creative use of the power of the mind. Two minutes of prayer, visualization, meditation for those in the way of the storm. Now um, you could see why she deleted it, because that's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. I want to repeat part of it here. Millions of us seeing Dorian turn away from land is not a wacky idea. It is a creative use of the power of the mind. No, it's not. It's called hoping some shit happens that will have no discernible effect on reality empirically. So now listen, don't get me wrong. If you want to do such a thing... Am I against it? No. You can do whatever the hell you want to do. I don't care. (laughs) You want to wish away the storm? By all means, go right ahead. The thing that that's that is not okay is this idea that like it'll have any effect. Because we know it won't have any effect. We know that this nonsense like the power of the mind yay That's you know absolute trash. That's like Hippie, mystical thinking, energy, crystals, chakras, nonsense. So I have a really low threshold for this stuff because we've seen it in politics in various forms. Whether it's, you know, a theocracy like Saudi Arabia, whether it's the evangelical religious right in the U.S. and how they're trying to take their religion and, uh, you know, force it into politics in this country. We don't need the goofy left-wing, like, energy equivalent of that. We don't need that because it's not true and it's wrong and it's silly. So, again, if you want to do it, I have no problem with that. In the same way, I have no problem with people of any religious religious faith practicing it as they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. But when you act like, oh, it's not crazy to – to use our prayers to try to turn it away. That is wacky. That is crazy. And it's not a creative use of the power of the mind. It has no impact. If it makes you feel better, go right ahead. But it's not its not doing what you're acting like it has the potential to do. And then as somebody else pointed out, and this is a good, a really good point. So it did turn away from Florida. And that's when she sent this, I believe. So it kind of like, it was supposed to go right through the Bahamas, and then go right straight through Florida. And it didn't do that. It went through – it sat parked on the Bahamas and just destroyed everything in sight, Category 5, for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Fifty percent of the island is destroyed. Um, And it did turn away. So as somebody pointed out on Twitter, it's like, okay, so are you saying that the people in the Bahamas didn't pray hard enough and their prayers weren't answered, but the prayers of the people in Florida were answered? Is that what you're saying? Is that the argument? Because that's the implication. If indeed what you're saying is how it works, that, oh, you just use the power of the mind and just focus and the creative energy of the mind will send out the vibes and then it'll switch away the hurricane, well then why are the people in the Bahamas absolutely devastated and why is their island destroyed and why did Florida make it out okay? I guess those you know people of color in the Bahamas didn't pray hard enough and and, it's, you know, maybe they should have prayed harder and it could have turned it away. I mean, this is like, I know that this wasn't her intent to say it like that, but this is how some people interpreted it. Like, what are you saying? Like, it, it's almost like, do you remember the Pat Robertson thing? Like, oh, the hurricane hit New Orleans because they had the gay pride parade. It's almost like, oh, they had it coming. Well, without even trying, Marianne Williamson kind of laid out the argument of, well, if you, just, if you just think creatively enough and hard enough, well, maybe you could turn away that hurricane. So I guess the people in the Bahamas didn't do that. It's just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to not say this. So now here's where the story gets even weirder, okay? So she deleted that, okay? But then after deleting it, she doubled down. I don't know if I've ever heard that before. <laughs> Usually it's one or the other. Oh, my God, I shouldn't have said that. Delete. And then you move on. My bad. I'm sorry. Whatever. Don't look at it. With her, it's delete it, because obviously it's wrong and it's dumb. And then after the fact, acts like all these people coming after me. How dare you? But you deleted it. So obviously you thought something was wrong with it. So here's what she said. Prayer is a power of the mind, and it is neither bizarre nor unintelligent people of faith belong in the democratic party and will be necessary to the effort if we're to win in 2020 let me pause there nobody said the opposite nobody said people of faith do not belong in the democratic party and we don't need them nobody said that i'm as non-religious as they come and i have never said that people of faith don't belong in the democratic party quite the opposite My philosophy is like I just laid out for you. I don't care. You do whatever you want. You say whatever you want. You worship however you want. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, by all means, go right ahead. Now, I might not agree with you, but that's irrelevant. That's totally irrelevant. So nobody's making she's She's going after a straw man here. Nobody said that uh, people of faith aren't welcome. Now, to the other part, prayer is a power of the mind and is neither bizarre nor honest. What do you mean it's a power of the mind? What does that mean? Prayer is a power of the mind. No, prayer is something that you do in your mind. There is no power of it in the sense that it then is guaranteed to manifest. That's not a thing. So when you say prayer is the power of the mind, what exactly are you saying? Are you saying that it has an impact in terms of materially? Because it doesn't. And you're not just going to get away with saying that and not having people fact check you because they're right and you're wrong. Prayer is the power of the mind. It, is it a power in so far as it could give people a placebo and therefore help them? Yes. Am I okay with it in those circumstances? Yes. No problem with it at all in those circumstances. The problem, Marianne, is that you pretended it's more than that. You pretended it's more than that, and it's not. And it's not. So, and she said, it's neither bizarre nor unintelligent. Well, it depends, doesn't it? If you're somebody who's praying, and you're praying because you hope things will go better, but you know what it is, and you keep it in perspective, no problem. That's not unintelligent. That's not bizarre. If you're claiming prayer can literally change the path of a hurricane, no. That is bizarre, and that is unintelligent. 100% it's bizarre and unintelligent. And stop trying to pretend otherwise. You deleted the tweet because on some level you know that that's the case. You know I'm right. All right, next. She says, I was born and raised in Texas, so I've seen it. Millions of people today are praying that Dorian turn away from land. And treating those people with mockery or condescension because they believed it could help, is part of how the overly secularized left has lost lots of voters. First of all, what does that even mean, the overly secularized left? I can't, what is there? One congressperson who is an open atheist? One? The overly secularized left. Who are you talking about? What are you talking, the people who accurately called your ass out for the terrible thing you said? A lot of those people were religious, by the way. It's not like they were all atheists. A lot of people are like, damn, man, look, I'm religious, but woo, you better reel it in a little bit with that silliness. What kind of a ridiculous thing to say. Um, this is the, the mockery or condescension, treating people with mockery or condescension because they believe it could help is, is part of how the overly secularized left has lost voters. I would submit to you there's no evidence at all of that dynamic, that people are like, I'm leaving the left because they're so overly secularized. That's not a thing, because you can't be overly secular. Secular just means, you know, separating religion and politics, which everybody agrees with, even a lot of religious people agree with. Any reasonable person agrees with secularism. So there's no such thing as, like, overly secular. I think the point she's trying to make is, like, dogmatically anti-religious folks. But that's such a tiny percentage of the population. And, again, there's only, what, one, maybe two congresspeople who are openly non-religious. So this idea of, like, the boot of the non-religious folks is on my neck. Why? Because you said something ridiculous and people were like, hey, that's ridiculous? There's nothing more annoying than, like, somebody saying something silly, the Internet correcting them, and then they, like, get mad at the Internet because they didn't just go along with their their silliness. Like, no, people are going to – it's like all these New York Times writers, like Brett Stevens, He says something dumb, and then people make fun of him. And he writes another column going after the people who made fun of him and acting like it's literally the worst thing since the Holocaust. Literally. Somebody innocuously called him a bed bug, and he, he wrote, uh, try to get that person fired by emailing, like, the provost to the place where the person worked. And then he went on TV and whined about it, and then he wrote an article about it. It's like, oh, my, get the fuck over yourself. God damn it, man. Holy shit. This is the same kind of shit. I was born and raised in Texas. So I've seen it millions of people today are praying that Dorian turn away from land and treating those people with mockery or condescension because they believe it could help is part of how the overly secularized left has lost lots of voters No, no let me be clear let me be crystal clear about this if you want to pray about whatever you want to pray about help yourself in your personal life say hey I hope you know this person maintains their health and wellness um, you know I hope X Y or Z happens if you want to pray and do that by all means go right ahead the only problem, Marianne, is, it, is when there is a claim made that this power of prayer goes above and beyond that which it, it actually affects. That's why I'm not okay with it. It's the same reason I'm mad when Pat Robertson, at the end of his show every night, sits there with his co-host, and they pretend to pray, Yes, oh, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And somebody out there is feeling cancer, don't worry, I'm, you're cured. Now, somebody's at home watching that, okay? Maybe they have a pain in their side. Maybe they think this is cancer, but it's okay. I just got cured. I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm chilling. That cancer goes from stage two to stage three to stage four. By the time they go into the emergency room, it's too late. So when you pretend like the power of the mind or the power of prayer has more of an impact than it, than it actually does, That is harmful to people. That is harmful to people. Now, are there some people who might stay in the direct fucking path of the hurricane because they think, ah, God will protect me because I prayed about it? Maybe there are. Do you want to feed into that delusion, Marianne? Is that what you want to do? Yes, Category 5 coming right for your face. Stay right there. You'll be fine. Marianne did the power of positive thinking, and you're praying to, you know, whatever, uh, Jesus, Yahweh, fucking... uh, muhammad whoever you're pray you're, you're good you're good don't worry about it no that materially harms people so that i'm not okay with that i'm not you're allowed to say hey i hope the hurricane turns away i'm gonna pray on it or i'm gonna pray that x y or z happens totally fine it's when there's a an empirical claim made that goes beyond what the actual impact of prayer is that i say eh, pump your brakes you're being ridiculous so you can't to get mad at people for checking you when you're wrong is so obnoxious, so obnoxious, and that's what she's doing. Again, millions um, of people are praying that Dorian turn away from land and treating those people with mockery or condescension because they believe it could help as part of how the overly secularized left has lost lots of voters. The overly secularized left is not a thing, and nobody's mad at people for hoping a hurricane turns away. We're mad at people who are proclaiming, no, this empirically will help in turning it away because that has negative consequences in the real world, like people ignoring evacuation orders um, and many other negative side effects as well. People who think that they could really out, you know, the power of the mind can override empirical reality. And also, hey, if the hurricane did destroy your area, I guess you didn't do enough, uh, you know, positive thinking. I guess you didn't do enough prayer. That really is, without even realizing it, she's feeding into this narrative of victim-blaming. I guess those people in the Bahamas just were, you know, didn't tap into that positive energy enough or didn't pray enough or weren't in connection with God enough or whatever silly nonsense. Without even realizing it, that's the argument that you're making, Marianne. So um, do us all a favor. Reel it in. Reel it in. And I'm not going to bite my tongue because you're, you're on the left nominally, even though you waffled massively on Medicare for All. But I'm not going to bite my tongue because the uh, silly mystical thinking is now on my team or whatever. No, it's just as silly as the evangelical Christians who say, oh, no, yeah, seriously, pray, and then maybe the hurricane will turn away. Just stop saying things that are wrong, and then we'll stop coming after you. And again, congratulations on being the first of all time to ever do the uh, the thing where you delete the tweet because you know it's wrong, but then you somehow double down anyway. It's got to be a record. Okay, now, Walmart. Here we go. This one is a little surprising for people. So Walmart has actually taken a step on gun control after the latest mass shooting in Odessa. Um, Let me show you a little video on that. Oh, wait, I don't have a video on this. My bad. All right, let me start that over. Oh, yeah, I replaced it with the chart. My bad. Here we go. So Walmart has surprisingly taken a step on gun reform after the latest mass shooting in Odessa, Texas. Take a look at this chart. It explains it. Updated gun policy, discontinuing sales of short-barrel rifle ammunition, that can be used for military-style guns, handgun ammunition nationwide, handguns in Alaska, the last state where they were sold, um, and what will still be sold is long barrel deer rifles and shotguns along with the required ammunition, hunting and sporting accessories, and apparel. Okay, so, you know, this is a decision that they made as a company because they, they hit their breaking point. Apparently, whoever the executives are hit their breaking point, and they were like, you know what? We really are seeing mass shootings happening all the time. It's happening, like, how often would you guys say it's happening? Probably every week, every other week at this point. I mean, it is really, really, really bad, really bad. And so many people are dying. And so I guess Walmart was like, hey, we don't want to contribute to this. You know, we want to do anything we can to not contribute to this while also maintaining our profits. So what they did is that's why they're still selling certain guns, long-barrel deer rifles and shotguns, along with ammunition for that and hunting and sporting accessories. But basically what they're saying is, you know, I guess, I guess as well there's also like um, semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles, things of that nature they're not selling. Um, and also handguns and handgun ammunition and any short-barrel rifle ammunition that can be used in military-style guns. They're done with that. So now here's, here's the interesting part of the conversation. How much of an impact will this have? Well, with any kind of reform when it comes to, to guns, you have to understand that nothing's ever going to be perfect. So, and this is, you know, a point that the right likes to seize on, the people who are massively pro-gun, to act like, well, there's, there's still going to be mass shootings. But what they don't acknowledge usually is what's going to happen in the aggregate. And what's going to happen is there will be a measurable decrease over time. Now, in some cases, you can say, no, it is literally because of this new gun regulation that this person wasn't able to get a gun. But in some cases, you won't be able to say that. We'll go to the black market and get a weapon and, you know, can effectively use it. And so this, well, this won't be perfect. You won't eliminate mass shootings. But can there be, you know, some sort of a measurable decrease? Sure, of course. Um, and basically the idea is you want to put as many barriers as possible in the way of somebody who shouldn't get a gun getting a gun. And that's a reasonable thing. And this is why over 90 percent of the American public supports universal background checks, for example, because even majority Republicans, even a majority of NRA members say we got to have background checks because I don't want guns getting in the hands of the wrong person. Most gun owners realize there are people out there who want to murder people and I'm not okay with that and I want to stop that too but they want to stop that without trying to infringe on their ability to own a gun necessarily so will this have an impact yeah probably will have an impact will it be a giant impact probably not I mean Walmart's only one company but then again they're such a massive company and they're in so many places and you know I'm sure a lot of people buy guns there that it, it will have I'm sure some impact Now, if you think that, hey, these kinds of things don't have an impact, well, take a look at what we learned about the recent shooting uh, in Odessa and the person who carried that out. Odessa mass shooter purchased his weapon in a private sale, which doesn't require a background check, law enforcement officials told NBC News. He failed a background check in 2014, the officials add. Think about that, man. Think about that. This is a, a clear example of, if we had a universal background check law, you may have been able to prevent this shooting. Now, the counterargument to that is, well, then he just go to the black market, or he would find some unscrupulous seller who doesn't care that he failed a background check. Possibly. However, don't you want to put some more roadblocks in that guy's way so you make it so maybe he doesn't get his hands on a gun? Every reasonable person says yes to that. Every reasonable person says absolutely you want to try to stop this guy from getting a gun? Again, are these laws foolproof? No, but will you see a decrease in the aggregate of mass shootings? Yet of mass shootings? Yes. If we have 10,000 gun homicides a year, we do, by the way, and we come up with some new laws. Uh, can we limit that number to 5,000 or 3,000? Of course. Sure, it's possible, and it will. There will be a. Mass. So this is an instance of a universal background check law could have absolutely helped the situation. There are other examples, too. I forget which shooting the Virginia Tech, maybe. or There's a few of them where there's clear examples. Dylan Roof was another one where certain gun regulations would have actually prevented the shooting from happening. Now, again, it won't stop all of them, but does it have the ability to stop many of them? Yes, it absolutely does because more roadblocks in the way of people who shouldn't get guns is a better thing. Now, um, this gets to the broader conversation, though. Going back to the Walmart point, Isn't it wild that right now, in some ways, you can shame a corporation into doing the right thing, and they're more responsive than when you shame the government and your representatives who are supposed to represent you? That's wild, man. That's wild. And just so everybody knows, and I'm sure you already do, on this particular issue of guns, you basically have the Democrats usually agree to the right ideas. However, they're weak, and they don't know how to actually get those ideas implemented. And the Republicans, so many people in the Republican Party, are totally bought by the NRA. And again, I want to draw a distinction here. I have no problem with the members of the NRA. My problem is with the leadership of the NRA, who oppose all kinds of gun reforms. Why? Because they take money from the gun manufacturers, who massively profit when there are no intelligent gun reforms. So um, it's just so... Mind boggling that we have a system now where it was massive public pressure on a corporation and the executives snapping and saying, I've had enough. That led to more tangible, substantive reform than shaming Congress because the leadership of the NRA and the gun manufacturers have bought virtually the entire Republican Party in Congress. There's a handful of Republicans who are okay with certain gun reforms, but most of them are not okay with any of them. And that really goes to show you that executives at an evil, amoral corporation like Walmart were more responsive to the will of the people than Congress on this issue. And that says everything about how corrupt and backwards the system is. And just a final note here for the right-wingers, man. You guys are all about the free marketplace. So you guys are all about these companies making whatever decision that they want. This is what you say your ideology is. Hey, it's a free society, free country, let these businesses make their own decisions, and you can butt the fuck out. Well, now you have Walmart definitively making a decision on guns, and they're reeling it in a little bit. And so for now, for them to come out and act like, wait, don't do that, what happened? I thought you were in favor of the free market. Don't you want to let the company make their own mind up? They can determine what they want to sell and what they don't want to sell, right? That's what you say, right? So, um, but there will be a backlash. We're going to get to a story on that in a second, but... um Walmart took some action. It'll be interesting to see if more um, companies follow suit, more big companies follow suit. Uh, I'm, obviously, there will still, still be, you know, mom and pop gun stores and, and whatnot, but um, it'll be interesting to see if the bigger companies take action because, I mean, there's been like 14 tipping points so far, so many because there's so many shootings. And as soon as it impacts certain people who have the power, then maybe they'll get a little bit more of the will to act but we'll see moving forward. Okay, next. So Ben Shapiro, a.k.a. Squeaky Benjamin... (laughs) made that one up right now i was gonna go with squeaky ben Shapiro, but uh benjamin just came out squeaky benjamin so he uh he's pretty angry that walmart decided to stop selling certain weapons and ammunition now again just to be clear walmart they didn't it was just a little step here it wasn't they didn't go above and beyond they didn't say we're done selling all weapons I'll tell you exactly what they did. Short barrel rifle ammunition that can be used for military-style guns. No longer selling that. Handgun ammunition nationwide. No longer selling that, by the way, because a majority of um, homicides are done with handguns. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to stop selling handgun ammunition. Make it harder for people to get it, which could, in the aggregate, drop the number of uh, homicides because it's just harder for people to get that. Um, And then also handguns in Alaska, which is the last state where they sell handguns. Um, so that's what they stopped selling. Again, they're still selling long barrel deer rifles and shotguns, along with the ammunition for that, and hunting and sporting accessories and apparel. So, I mean, really, it was a, it's a very kind of milk toast centrist, tiny step in a direction that they're comfortable with because, frankly, I'm sure there was some public pressure involved, but also the executives at the company were just like, this is insane. We're seeing a mass shooting like every week. So we're going to do something. Even if it's just a little thing, we're going to do something that might help even the tiniest bit. Fair enough. Okay, so... um, Squeaky Benjamin chimes in, and he says the following. The left has found a new way of implementing policy from the top down, without the use of government. Simply, pressure massive corporations to do their political bidding. Okay, but Ben... You're the guy who screams about the free market every day. You love the free market. You love when these companies make their own decisions. That's your whole shtick. So if people in a free society are like, hey, we should probably do something about this mass shooting like every week or every other week they were having. And the people at the top of Walmart were like, hmm, I agree with that fellow concerned citizen. I will now make a decision to discontinue selling only certain things associated with that. Don't we file that under hashtag freedom? Because that strikes me as freedom. <laughs> and the company making their own decision, for Ben Shapiro to step in and say, I don't agree with the decision that you decided to take your company in, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try to stop that and change it. Well, then wouldn't you be violating that free market principle that you care about so deeply? What, you want to make the decision for Walmart? No. The executives at the company make the decision because they're Walmart. So they get to make their own decisions. That's a free market. Now, that's what you say you believe in, except when you don't believe in it. Now, the other part of this that's absolutely hilarious is – oh, and also I should draw a quick distinction. It's actually unclear as to whether or not it was the public pressure on Walmart that made them change their mind. That could have played some role. But it also just very clearly could have been they made their own mind up because they were uncomfortable at this point with what was going on in the country, so they wanted to make some changes. So we don't know exactly how much both of those things weighed into it, but either way, this is them doing what they want in a free marketplace, and he's against it. Now, he's also just a massive, massive hypocrite because every time – There's any kind of pressure from the left on anything. It's, uh, uh, these guys are enemies of freedom, and, you know, who does boycotts? This is like a petty authoritarian move. I don't know why anybody would do that. Ben Shapiro does them all the time. So his website protested uh, Mozilla after the co-founder's resignation over Prop 8. So I vaguely remember this story. This was back in 2014. And I guess uh, this person, I think that had to do with LGBTQ issues. And so the co-founder of Mozilla had like an anti-LGBTQ stance. And then I guess he was like, he resigned or something along those lines. And of course, Ben was upset because it's like, why are you pressuring out the anti-LGBTQ folks? How dare you? So his website decided let's protest Mozilla, to basically stand in solidarity with this anti-gay person who now is no longer with them. So that's him doing the exact same thing that he's now like, the left is using this tactic, and it's a really bad tactic. Or what does he say? The left has found a new way of implementing policy from the top down without the use of government. Simply pressure massive corporations to do their political bidding. This is you pressuring a corporation to do your political bidding. That's what you're doing here. Um, And then he also, this is my favorite, he organized a boycott helped organize a boycott of Ritz Crackers because Ritz Crackers advertised on Al Sharpton's show and in the past at some point Al Sharpton had called white people crackers or something and so they were like and Ritz was advertising on Al Sharpton's show so they were like, well, how dare you? We're gonna you know we're gonna uh, protest you and boycott you because you're supporting this racist Al Sharpton. So it's just, listen, this is the whole point. The whole point is he will flip his standard like that. He will flip his principles like that. He doesn't think about these things in an objective way. He's just a partisan hack. Now, if he came as advertised, fine. You're a partisan hack and that's that. But no, you come advertising like, I'm the cool kids philosopher and I'm really consistent and I'm really intelligent. And you're just not. I'm sorry. It's kind of embarrassing that it's this easy to to find instances of you doing the exact same thing that you're railing against. It's kind of pathetic. So this is, I mean, this segment is obviously not geared towards him. I'm not speaking to him here. I'm speaking to all the people who might stumble across this video and be a Ben Shapiro fan, and it's just like, okay, but just know who you're supporting. He's kind of a ridiculous person. (laughs) So just understand that. And um, certainly not the cool kids philosopher, certainly not consistent and wouldn't we all be better off if he just kind of was honest and said, yeah, I'm just a right winger and I'm going to always make the arguments of the right and work backwards for my conclusion. And I'm not uniquely principled. I'm not uniquely intelligent. I'm not uniquely consistent. I'm anything but that. Okay, here we go. Now we got a man by the name of Bet on My Stork. So there's a man in the presidential race by the name of Bet on My Stork, and uh, his campaign is massively, massively flailing. Um, you can see here. I wish I forgot who made this. I'm sorry. I want to give credit to him. He did such a good job. I mean, this is just, it almost looks like they, he actually took this picture. (laughs) Like he had the stork next to him, the bird next to him. Um, Not us, him. Oh, my God, that's so on point for this guy, man. It's just so perfect. So, anyway, um, the only time this entire race that Bet on My Stork has gotten positive press was when he cursed. There was one time he did it when he was asked a question by the media that was dumb, and he was like, oh, come on, come on, seriously? But you're going to ask that, Brad? Totally not rad. I don't know why I'm making him the Michael Bennett character right now. He's obviously flally, flailing arms, Beto. Huh? That's the, you know, when you're driving on a random highway in some, like, very desolate area, and you see a, a car dealership in the middle of nowhere, they got the flailing arms thing that just like, that's, that's uh, Beto on my story. Uncontrollable. Um, but what he and his campaign noticed is, oh, my God, when he acts like he's fed up, that's when he gets positive press. When he's like, you know, when he's being his usual really measured self and uh, awkwardly talking, that's when uh, Beto gets into trouble. Um, so they decided, okay, well, let's just do this as much as humanly possible to try to get more positive press. So now, like every week, there's a moment where Beto curses, and he'll wait like a little, you know, desperate puppy dog. He waits for that pat on the head from the media.
4: He's like, oh, yes,
2: good for you. Look at you. You're so edgy. That wasn't at all planned. So this is the most recent one. It was after the Odessa shooting. Look at what he said. condition
5: of those who have survived don't know what the motivation is do not yet know the firearms that were used or how
2: they acquired them but we do know this is <laughs> <up>. <laughs> so then he went on cnn and you know he kind of like explained it because he was like "Who, good sir you cursed on the campaign trail edgy please weigh in more on this issue and the whole catalyst of the conversation was that he cursed. Not like, hey, there was a massive mass shooting, let's do something about it. It was like, ooh, you cursed. So let's have that be the hook into the segment. Listen, man, I, should, I am not the one to criticize people for cursing because I've been doing it like a sailor my entire time I've had a show. But here's the difference, and I think all of you know this. I'm not trying to do it. I'm not doing it as a matter of strategy. I'm doing it because that's how I am, and that's how I talk. So as a general rule, if you're the kind of person who curses like a sailor, then curse like a sailor, whether you're a political candidate or not. Just be yourself. But And if you're not a person who curses, like, say, Elizabeth Warren, then just embrace that about yourself. There's nothing morally superior or inferior or positive or negative about, you know, the noises you make with your mouth. It just is what it is, and you are who you are. So... In a weird way, I have a lot more respect for somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who's this wonky technocrat, and who, at least I've never seen her curse. But, like, it seems like she's comfortable with that. Whereas Beto's, like, he's using it as a strategy. It's too thought out. It's too fake. It's too forced. It doesn't suit him. It doesn't fit him. So so that's the main distinction in my mind. It's not that everybody should not curse or everybody should curse. It's that just be who you are and be yourself. And when it looks like it's too calculated and it's overly thought out, man, does that come across in a gross way. It just feels so gross. Now, if he was cursing and it really did fit him, we wouldn't even be doing this story. We wouldn't. I'd just be like, okay, that's just him being him. It's whatever. But we know he's doing it as a matter of strategy. And if you think it's not, you're embarrassingly wrong because look at this. O'Rourke's campaign selling this-is-fucked-up shirts... After latest Texas mass shooting. So the new thing is, get your moment, and then we're going to put it on shirts for these uh, presidential candidates. It, Kamala did it with the, that little girl was me, that plan line. Bernie's done it with certain lines, I just don't remember. Uh, oh, I wrote the damn bills, the one that he did it with. And now Beto's saying, oh, this is fucked up, and, uh, right after the shooting. got to be a genuine moment man these are not genuine moments they're overly scripted they're so does anybody out there really think that i wrote the damn bill is something that bernie planned before the debate there's no way you want to know why because tim ryan went after bernie and they didn't know he was going to go after bernie they didn't know the way he was going to go after bernie but he did tim ryan went after bernie he's like you don't know that talking about medicare for all like, of course i know what i wrote the damn bill that was a genuine moment. That was a sincere moment. This better O'Rourke thing, he was just waiting to drop more curses, and it was a strategy because that's the only way he gets positive press. It's so embarrassing. It's like a Pavlovian response. He's like a little dog who needs to pat on the head from the media, and he's like looking for that adoration and that support. This candidate is so sad. When he launched, he had all the positive press in the world. He was on the cover of magazines and whatnot, and everybody's was acting like, yeah, 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 this is the guy, this is the guy. Fast forward, like, honestly, it took like, Two and a half weeks, and he's in nowheresville. Why? Because he's too calculated, and he's too fake, and he's got no hope, he's got no prayer, he's not running on any original idea, he just is running on the narcissism of being himself and wanting to get elected. And that comes across, and it's super clear. So anyway, as Abby Martin puts it, like, monetizing on this, on faux dissent, is so, it's just so gross. And it perfectly fits the political era that we're in today. Like the Donald Trump political era, the reality TV era, and like the weird commercialization of our politics and branding. And it's just, when it's not done properly and when it's not done in a sincere and genuine way, it comes across as the grossest thing in the world. And that's what I see when I see this spit on my store thing is that he's just, he's desperate, and they're trying anything. And so the new thing was, like, we're going to take a mass shooting and drop a curse word to try to seem edgy, even though he's nowhere near edgy, and then throw it on a T-shirt and, like, what, hope that this snowballs and all of a sudden you're leading the race? Come on, man. Have some self-awareness. Do you have no shame? Drop out and run for the Senate. You know it's what you should do, bro. You know it's what you should do. What a joke. So as I always say when we talk about this, I, for one, will not be betting on this stork. Okay next So Bernie weighed in on the DNC screwing him on the view Let's take a look at his answer about that, as well as Tulsi.
0: So he's basically saying that the DNC screwed you over last time for Hillary and is going to screw you over again. Do you think that's happening? And if it does, will you have a contested convention?
5: Meg, let me respond in, in two sentences. And I would never speak I, I, that. I, I, okay. I, I <laughs>
0: okay. we have
5: our When <laughs> President Trump refers to somebody else as crazy – Talk about, you know, somebody in a glass house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> President Trump. For <laughs> so the projection. Yes. Do you
0: feel like the DNC is in the tank for candidates?
5: Look, last time around, and okay. this time, my campaign, you know, I talked about it with Whippy, we are taking on the establishment. That's no great secret. We're taking on Wall Street. We're taking on the insurance companies, the drug companies. We're taking on Trump. We're taking on the Republican uh, machine. Uh, we're also taking on the Democratic establishment. The difference, though, between this time and last time is, as you will recall, before the first vote was cast in Iowa, Secretary Clinton had 500 superdelegates lined up behind her. In other words, like it's a 100-yard race, she's on the 30-yard line. We ended that. We ended that. I would go further, but right now, on the first ballot at the Democratic National Convention, no, no superdelegate will be voting. That's a step forward. Uh, Second of all, I'm feeling pretty good about our campaign, and I very much appreciate uh, President Trump's Wholehearted concern about me. I know he is being sincere
0: really, about this. me yeah. follow yeah. up really quick though. But Congressman Tulsi Gabbard um, is saying she's she's been excluded from the DNC stage, and she actually resigned as you know as vice chair of the DNC last time because of your treatment. Um, number one, do you think that she was right? Again, I I, I just don't know if getting rid of super is enough. And do you think it's your turn to stand up for her to be on the same well, stage now? L-
5: let me just say this. Uh, I would go further. I would. Ban superdelegates from voting on any ballot. Hmm. We could not achieve that. We got them off the first ballot, which was a step forward. Tulsi is a good friend of mine. Uh, where the DNC right now had a difficult problem. How do you deal with 20 candidates who are running? Do you have 20 people up on the stage together? Does that make a sensible debate? I think not. Hmm. So they came up with their approach. I'm not a great fan, I should tell you, Megan, as to how we do debates in general. Right. Uh, my own feeling would be rather than giving people 45 seconds yeah. to talk about what we do with the crisis of high cost of prescription drugs we focus on health care we focus on climate change do it issue by issue rather than uh, trying to deal with 50 different issues in a short I'd period like of time
2: yeah I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea so you know you guys know I'm not the biggest fan of the debate format because you um, it's, it's more about like, sophistry and scoring points than it is about seriously diving into an issue and trying to get to the truth of the matter. And it's easy for somebody who's wrong on the issue to win a debate simply because they came across better. So the debate format is just not the best of trying to ascertain what the truth is. I call it like the WWE of intellectual pursuits. And that's no shot at the WWE. I'm just saying that um, it's not actual fighting. People are putting their body through hell, but they're not actually fighting, in the same way that when you do a debate, you're not actually trying to get at the truth. You're doing a debate. So it's just a different animal. It's a different beast. Um, so I'm sympathetic to what he's saying. However, the downside of what he's saying is let's say we did it like he's describing it, like, oh, let's go issue for issue and just have you know whatever, 30 minutes or an hour, and each candidate gets to talk about what their you know, take is on, on that issue. That will not get as good ratings and arguably it won't get to as many people. And so people, while a smaller number of people will watch and they will be more educated as to what your policies are, um, your policies won't get to more people because there just won't be as many people watching. So that's the upside and the downside of the debate. The the upside of a debate is, like, people want to watch it. They always want to watch it because they – that conflict, for whatever reason, attracts eyeballs. People want to see that conflict. They want to see that kind of forum. Um, So it reaches more people if it's a debate, but you could argue they're not as educated as if it was the uh, the format Bernie's talking about. Um, But in the format Bernie's talking about, just not as many people would watch. So that's the upside and the downside. But I am sympathetic to his idea because he wants to get his ideas across, and he wants to actually educate people. So it makes perfect sense why he would uh, argue for the position he's arguing for. Um, now, also, when he was mentioning that, that was in direct response to the question about Tulsi Gabbard. He said, Tulsi Gabbard's a friend of mine, and I would go further. I would have you know, all the candidates get their allotted time and do it that way and move away from the debate um, format. So that's him coming out in support of Tulsi Gabbard and saying, yeah, let's, let's rework the way we do the whole thing. And also, you know, she shouldn't be excluded from the debate stage. She's a friend of mine. So that's good. You, know, you could argue he could have been more direct. Yeah, he could have been a little more direct in support of her, um, but nonetheless, he still generally spoke out in support of her there and is in favor of totally changing the debate format. Now, beyond that, um, he, he of course, said, we need to ban superdelegates, and he's right about that. And his answer on whether or not the DNC has favorites was interesting because he basically said yes, but he did it without the teeth. So he said, like, yeah, they have favorites, and yeah, I'm going to take them on. That was his answer in so many words. Um, But he did it in a way where it didn't come across as, like, malicious and vindictive and angry. And see, this is something that Bernie's been – you know, this is the – Bernie has an impossible job. He's walking this impossible tightrope, and I think everybody needs to understand that because – think about it. The DNC totally screwed him the last time around. A lesser person would have been, you know – would have, like, taken that personally, because it was, and would have said, fuck this, would have ran as an independent, and then when Trump won, Bernie would have been blamed to this day, and everybody who was even on the fences about Bernie would have, like, been more pissed at Bernie. So, in other words, if he ran as an independent, he wouldn't have won. There's no way. You just can't win as an independent. The way our system is, is set up, you can't win as an independent, if a Democrat, Republican, independent for a presidential race, there's no way the independent can win. Um, but he would have gotten plenty of votes, and then Hillary and the entire Democratic establishment would have blamed him, and then he would have been a pariah, and there's obviously no way he would have been able to run this time as a Democratic candidate. And it would have went it would have been a lot worse if he did that. So what Bernie's done is he's playing the long game, so he realizes, okay, they screwed me. I I see it. It is what it is. The effort from Bernie was still, okay, massive, gigantic effort to get more regular people involved in the process to totally reform the Democratic Party. And in my estimation, from, from everything I've seen, my takeaway from it is Bernie is trying to trump the DNC this time around. In other words, the Republican establishment did not want Trump. If you guys remember, they were bouncing around, oh, it's Jeb, oh, fuck, it's not Jeb, oh, it's Marco Rubio, oh, shit, it's not Marco Rubio. Finally, they went, we'll even take Ted Cruz, fine. It wasn't Ted Cruz. So the Republican establishment did not want Donald Trump, but Donald Trump trumped them in that his win was so overwhelming that he just curb stomped his way to the White House. He curb stomped his way through the primary. So that's what Bernie's trying to do this time around. So in the process of doing that, It looks like the move is, let me let everybody know, yeah, they have favorites, yeah, look at what happened with Hillary and the superdelegates, and yeah, I'm going to take on the Democratic establishment, I'm going to take on the DNC. You let them know that, but he's not doing it in in such a vindictive way, and he's not doing it in such an over-the-top way that he gets the Democratic establishment more engaged, more organized and they can therefore know who their enemy is and then react accordingly and go the extra mile to screw him over, if that makes sense. So in other words, it looks like Bernie's doing this strategy of uh, I need to keep my friends close, but my enemies closer. So since the DNC screwed him, he only got more involved and got more of his people involved in the process trying to take over the Democratic Party, running as a Democrat again. So it seems to me like When it comes to the Machiavellian angle of politics and what the Democratic establishment did and and how they treat Bernie, he's really really like playing chess with them. Now, it's possible that it doesn't end up working out, but I think that the way he went about this is far more intelligent than basically saying after they screwed him in 2016 – fuck this, and just blowing up the whole thing, and then instantly becoming a pariah and being blamed for Trump nonstop. Like, he knows what would have happened if he, if he went that way, and so he decided, I'm going to go this other way. I'm going to be intelligent about this. I'm going to be clever about this. I'm going to be crafty about this. But he's letting everybody know because he just he said it in so many words there. Yeah, they have favorites. Yeah, you know, they screwed me and, and put Hillary in there. And, yeah, I'm taking them on. Guys, we're getting close, man. We're right there. We're right there. That's why we you know, we got to be more involved now than ever. We really do. You got to make phone calls. You got to knock on doors. You got to spread the word. Every little bit helps because this dude is right there. He's one of the top candidates in the race. And um, it seems like all the chess moves he made to this point have been brilliant. He kept the DNC the second time around enough off of his ass to put himself in a position to trump the race. He set everything up for us. Now it's just a matter of us getting him over that finish line. But this is a clear sign that he knows the DNC screwed him. He knows they have favorites. And he knows he has to take them on. And he's going to do that, and he's going to do that in a very intelligent way. let's take a, a final quick break and then when we come back the media is not reporting the story about Afghanistan correctly and we're going to do that and then Rokana Khanna is, is creating jobs in the middle of the country which is awesome and then also I got some big news for you bitch ass so stay right there we'll be right back with all that and much more you mofos ate a bagel. I'm not going to lie to you wonderful people. Why would I do such a thing? Why would I do such a thing? Goddamn bagel was delicious. I could definitely eat like three of those, so I'm happy I'm back on air to not eat three of those. Okay, the media is reporting the Afghanistan story wrong. Let's dive into it. So mainstream media isn't reporting the new story about the afghanistan war properly and that's a shame in fact they're really really way off um so let's take a look at this clip from fox news then we'll come back and i'll break it down further
0: All right, Fox News alert. The U.S. reaches a deal in principle to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. The tentative agreement made with the Taliban coming as the militant group defends a suicide bombing in the capital city of Kabul, where 16 civilians were killed and dozens wounded yesterday. Lucas Tomlinson is live at the Pentagon
6: for us now. Lucas? Sandra, the tentative agreement it calls for more than five thousand troops to be pulled out from five bases across Afghanistan. There are fourteen thousand US troops currently deployed there. The news comes from Pres there are fourteen thousand thousand troops to be pulled the tentative agreement it calls for more than five thousand troops to be pulled out from five bases across Afghanistan. There are fourteen thousand US troops currently deployed there. The news comes from President Trump's special envoy to the US led peace talks with the Taliban. We have reached an agreement with
4: the Taliban in principle, but of
6: course, until the U.S. president agrees with it, it isn't final. Last night, a massive truck bombing rocked Kabul as Khalil Khalilzad's interview aired last night on local news. The explosion hit an area where dozens of international groups are housed. At least 16 civilians were killed, more than 100 wounded. The Taliban claimed responsibility for the attack. Khalilzad also said the draft agreement identifies the Taliban as the Islamic Emirate. Afghanistan's ambassador to the U.S. questioned the Taliban's commitment to peace as fighting continued and another U.S. Special Forces soldier was killed.
0: I am uh, wondering if, on one hand, you are negotiating peace, and on the other hand, you continue to kill the party that is sitting across from you on the table, how does that work?
6: Over the weekend, the Pentagon identified the U.S. Army Green Beret killed in combat late last week in southern Afghanistan. Thirty-one-year-old Sergeant First Class Dustin Ard of Idaho Falls, Idaho, was killed Thursday in southern Afghanistan's Zabul Province on the border with Pakistan. Fifteen U.S. troops have been killed in combat this year, the most in the past five years, but far fewer than the roughly 500 killed in 2010 when over 100,000 U.S. troops were deployed to Afghanistan. Sandra. Lucas Tomlinson at the Pentagon. Lucas, thank you.
2: So the way that this is being portrayed in print media and uh, in mainstream media on TV is that it's a withdrawal. And I've seen think pieces saying, like, oh, the Taliban is going to capitalize on this withdrawal of troops. And I just think that's massively misleading because they actually stated the number there. There's 14,000 troops there and 5,000 are going to be leaving. That leaves 9,000 there? That's not a withdrawal. Let's stop being ridiculous. In fact, we've seen this before. Obama at times had yo-yoed the troop levels. Bush at times had yo-yoed the troop levels, where, you know, you have up to 100,000 at times, and then you draw it down to 10,000. And um, I, there, I think there have been times where it's been like 4,000 or 8,000. Trump is going to leave 9,000 troops there? Let me explain to you what this is. This is Donald Trump. His instincts are like, well, we should get out, Stupid. But he surrounds himself with neocon advisors, and then they're like, no, yeah, sure, we're going to get out. Anyway, so here's our plan that leaves 9,000 troops there. And he's like, okay, tremendous. That's not a withdrawal. We've been there 18 years. If you want to stay there, you better come to me with a very specific plan detailing why we're there, why we're still there, why we need to continue to be there. Here's what our goals are and how we're going to meet them in the future. If you don't have that, I'm not even entertaining this conversation, because as a result of us being there, the situation is tangibly worse. I'm not just saying that. The Taliban controls more territory today than they did before we invaded. Stop and think about that. So that is like the definition of failure. And if you want to say, hey, let's just call it a success and get out, you could also do that because the stated goal was we got to get Osama bin Laden. And guess what? He did. Been dead for a long time. It wasn't even in Afghanistan. It was in Pakistan that we got him. So you could say Osama bin Laden's dead. You could say al-Qaeda is in tatters. They're barely in Afghanistan anymore. That's true. But the Taliban is there, and they control over 50% of the country, which you're going to have to... Deal with because they're a guerrilla army. So, you know, you could help out the Afghanistan government and give them the ability to control their own territory, give them, you know, the funds, the the arming. But for us to just stay there and 15 service members just recently died, what are you going to say to their family members? It's hey, don't worry, they died uh, fighting for freedom. We know Afghanistan is not going to be some sort of Jeffersonian democracy. Don't be ridiculous. So what they die for? For us to try to get our hands on mineral wealth, the trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth that Afghanistan has? Maybe. Did they die for the profits of the military-industrial complex? Maybe. But they died, it was an endless war. They died in an endless war. Eighteen years, man. Eighteen years. There are young adults walking around today who have never experienced a single moment in their lives that the war in Afghanistan wasn't going on. That's madness, and that's lunacy. We have to stop it, and we have to stop it now. Just drawing down to 9,000 is not nearly enough, and the media in their normal, terrible fashion, instead of saying, this isn't a withdrawal, you're keeping 9,000 troops there. Why? Why? What's the reason? What are your defined goals? When will you declare victory and come home? How much longer do you want? Instead of doing that, they do the opposite. President Trump withdrawing and giving the Taliban the ability to take over more of the country and fill the power vacuum. This is a bad idea. So what's your plan? Stay there with 15,000? You know, stay there, knock it up to 30? What's your plan? And how would you justify it to the families of the people who are being sent to die in an endless war with no goals. All right, let's go to Rokana. Rosef Kana. <laughs> <laughs> Rosef. That's pretty funny. So Rokana is uh, building bridges and literally getting people in the middle of the country jobs, is a pretty cool story. Take a look.
1: Well, the last person you'd expect to fight for tech
7: jobs in America's heartland is a congressman representing Silicon Valley. But that is exactly what our friend Ro Khanna of California is doing. And not just talking about it, but actually doing it. Truly positive and practical, and he is here now. Congressman, uh, tell us what you've been working on. Well, Steve, the, we're doing a project with Governor Reynolds in Jefferson,
1: Iowa. Uh, we're going to provide dozens of scholarships for kids to get about 18 months of tech training. Uh, it's a partnership with uh, Accenture, with Facebook, with other tech companies. And at the end of this training, they're going to have jobs, jobs paying between 60 to $70,000, and they get to stay in the communities they love in uh, Jefferson, Iowa or other uh, western rural Iowa.
7: So that's so important, that point you just made there, because our earlier guest, Chris Arnardi, he's talking about the, the way that so much of uh, the, the kind of the conversation in the last, you know, few decades, actually, about the economy. is being, well, the economy's changing. It's all becoming this knowledge economy. If your factory closes, tough luck, you've got to move somewhere else and get, go where the jobs are. You're showing that that's not necessary. Do you think this can go beyond I – mean, is, is this a demonstration of – what can be done, that, and, and how, will, how would you like to see this kind of spread to other places? It is. It's,
1: I call it a ripple in a pond. There's no reason that we need 200,000 tech jobs outsourced to places like China or Brazil. We could be doing that in the heartland, and the reality is, Steve, that most people don't want to move. They love the community. They're concerned that their churches are dwindling, that their kids are having to leave. What uh-huh. we need to do is allow them to preserve their way of life, and bring these jobs here, and there are cost advantages to have these jobs uh, not just located in the Bay Area, uh, and the talent is everywhere. So if we are
7: deliberate, we can make this work. So this particular project, it seems to me, you know, it's it's really been, you know, you've driven it, Governor Reynolds has been involved, that kind of personal involvement. What are some of the policy levers or policy changes that you'd look at to try and, if you like, institutionalize this to make it a part of the economy moving forward? A few things. I think we need high-speed, affordable broadband
1: everywhere. We can do that for $40 billion. That can be a bipartisan initiative. Second, we also have tax incentives to hire workers in these communities. Uh, Quebec has a model uh, similar to that where they actually provide tax incentives to hire folks in a community. Why don't we have that in rural America? Third, uh, why don't we make sure that if you have a federal software contract, Uh, at least 10% of your workforce is coming uh, from the rural communities or from communities of color, so that uh, even if 90% is coming from Silicon Valley, we're incentivizing companies uh, not to offshore,
7: but to hire people in this country. Those are really (laughs) sensible and practical things. I mean, I just think that um, if we just had that, pragmatic approach to these things rather than the more – it feels to really me like the last few decades has been very ideologically driven, you know, like we've, we've got this laissez faire dogma that has driven a lot of policy, and you're saying – and I think this is what's the interesting alliance, you left and right here – saying, no, let's focus on the worker and do things that really make a difference. Um, are, you, are you talking to the administration about any of this?
1: I have. You know, I've actually uh, talked to Jared Kushner in the White House Office of Innovation and Matt Lira there. These are practical ideas to make sure that America wins the 21st century. We need to make sure that more people have access to technology uh, in a technology revolution and more people are going to have jobs, whether it's in advanced manufacturing, whether it's in ag tech, uh, whether it's in uh, software design. Uh, And the interesting thing here is, Steve, that it is not ideological. Obviously you need the private sector. I, I heard your earlier segment. You're absolutely right. You can't just have colleges or high schools that have no clue about what the private sector needs. You need to have practical partnerships with the private sector, but you also need uh, government is strategic investment, and that's what built America, government investment with colleges, universities, and the private sector. Yeah, so that's, that's
2: awesome. This is awesome. This is like real rubber meets the road policy stuff and getting things done. The only thing I'll caution against is you don't, for public private partnerships, you need to make sure that the terms are reasonable because oftentimes, since our government is so corrupt, they'll come up with these deals where they're just forking over taxpayer money to private companies and the private companies are doing Dickie McGee's acts and uh, they're just pocketing that. So as long as the terms are clear and as long as it's, you know, it's. Um, there is no wiggle room or room for interpretation or misinterpretation. And the idea is, hey, you're creating X number of jobs, um, then then I'm totally for it. And what's interesting is that this guy, I think Steve Hilton, his name is? Uh, he, he fancies himself a right-wing populist. And uh, from what I've seen of him, he's like the only person who actually means it on the right. Um, like he's actually in favor of... of creating policies that benefit working people in this country. So whereas a guy like Donald Trump, I'd argue, and Steve Bannon, they're fundamentally like fake populists, where they're more than willing to do the language of populism and, oh, working people are screwed, these these trade deals are terrible, and then they turn around and they're like, hey, let's do the standard stupid uh, right-wing economics that has gotten us into a freaking depression and a recession. Let's do deregulation, let's do tax cuts for the rich, so on and so forth. So um, this is awesome, and this is basically like he's talking about almost like a tech new deal kind of thing where you prevent outsourcing of tech jobs, and instead you you move those jobs to the middle of the country. And what I would do is he says, oh, use tax incentives to get them to do it or have a requirement of like 10% of the workforce being in the middle of the country or whatever. I would also do the other approach, which is – Okay, tax incentives if you keep it here, but also it's punitive if you, if you want to outsource the jobs. So we'll make it worth your while to keep them here, and we will punish you if they go abroad. And there will be no wiggle room on that either. You're going to be massively incentivized to create the jobs here. Um, and that's really what he's talking about here. And uh, it's wonderful that now there's this um, – you know, you know, in some ways how there's that libertarian progressive alliance on foreign policy – there's a very strange paleoconservative progressive alliance on trade, which is great. That's, that's awesome. So, you know, always, if you're working towards your desired policies, don't hesitate to work with people who even, you know, you would otherwise despise. As long as you're not agreeing on their grounds, then there's no reason not to work it out. And so that's what we're seeing here with the paleocons, so-called populist right, working with the left on keeping jobs in America, disincentivizing outsourcing, and uh, trying to make our country, you know, prosper and thrive. So I love this stuff from Ro Khanna, and um, hopefully there's more of this moving forward. Okay, final story of the day, bitch. It's not really a story. It's just an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, it is official. Yours truly will be at Politicon this year. Um, so it's happening. It's not in LA this year. It's happening in Nashville, Tennessee, October 26th and October 27th. So um, I will be there. Do I know the exact events I will be involved in? No. I will be in at least three events. Um, some of them might be panels. Some of them might be discussions. I don't know if they want to go nuts and give me some sort of a speech or something, which would be a good idea for them if they wanted to do that. Um, it would be. I would love to deliver a speech about the state of the of the left wing movement in this country. Um, But, you know, will there be a debate? Very likely there will be a debate, although if there is going to be one, I do not know who my opponent is as of yet. Will all of them dodge me again? Maybe, maybe. Um, You know, we already know, we already had a good laugh at what went down with Candace Owens, um, among many others who all of a sudden become Neo from The Matrix and want to dodge like crazy as soon as my name is brought up. Some of them because they don't know me, but others because they have nothing to gain from a debate with me and only things to lose. But nonetheless, I'm sure somebody will step up to the plate, and I'm sure we'll have a great time. So I will be at Politicon, Nashville, Tennessee, October 26th and 27th. Um, my sidekick, Corin, will also be there. At last year's Politicon, we had a great uh, time meeting everybody. Hopefully they could set up you know, a sort of situation where you know, I I could meet everybody, and because last year it was almost like an impromptu line that appeared out of nowhere, and we were like right outside of a room where other people were doing debates and discussions and along the side, and so it was a little bit scattershot, and at the last minute, hopefully it'll be a little little more organized, and maybe they could have some, like a side area set up where we can have an official meet thing where I chat with each one of you for maybe a minute or two and and take pictures and whatnot, just like we did last year, Um, but I will be there, so... Come join me. (laughs) Come join me, and I'll leave the link in the video description box. It'll be the first link in the video description box. The tickets are available at politicon.com, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And also, I'm hitting you with a two-for-one. I got two big announcements today. I will also be on the Joe Rogan podcast on October 29th. so, you know, a day or two after Politicon, and um, I'm sure that'll be a lot of fun as well. I'm sure we will talk about the election. I'm sure we'll talk about you know all the different candidates, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about all the really shitty candidates too, like Bet on My Stork, like Amy Cloudboot Jar, and like many others.
1: <laughs>
2: so anyway, um, I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, And then, who knows, maybe when I'm there, i got to talk to, uh, get in contact with Cenk, and, you know, maybe he'll have me on that show, the conversation that he has. So, anyway, I'm thinking out loud now, but October 26th and 27th in Nashville, Tennessee, I will be there for Politicon, looking forward to it. Everybody, you know, grab your tickets now, and I will see you there. All right. We're done, y'all. Love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a good rest of the day. Peace out.